This is a Federal News Network podcast. The effects of climate change and extreme weather have started to make an impact on the military. One example is how frequent hurricanes are battering installations down south. Defense Department Sustainability Chief Joe Bryan says the Pentagon has new efforts underway to shield weapon systems, bases, and other assets from severe weather. Federal News Network Scott Massioni recently spoke with Bryan about them. Fundamental driving principle of our climate work is to improve the department's performance with respect to the climate and our resilience to the impacts of climate, but at the same time, always having an eye towards capability. What we do needs to serve our core mission, which is to be able to fight and win wars on behalf of the United States. And so anything we do has to has to align with that. And the, and the good part, again, is that many of the things that we're doing uh, that are um, that help climate risk are actually just exhibition. I mean, there's a few, and there's a few exciting things that we've, we've done in the past six months. Um, we recently put out a, a request for information to industry to see whether industry would be able to serve significant uh, power needs of the department with carbon-free electricity. Uh, could they do it? Could they do it at a price that's competitive? Um, so that's, that's exciting because, the, as, as folks know, the Department of Defense operates at a massive scale, and sometimes the things that we can help transform markets. And so the president uh, put out there an executive order on sustainability to, to transform the federal government, both our, our electricity purchases, our vehicle fleets, our buildings and operations, to reduce our contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. So the department's really taken, taken that on and it has been the lead in, in going to the market and asking uh, whether the market could service at a price uh, that's competitive. And we're kind of thinking through that right now, but we'll have a strategy for, for meeting the president's objectives to get us to a, to a better place over the next several years. On a, similarly, on electrification, we're thinking a lot about uh, our non-tactical fleet, the cars and vans and trucks that run around our bases. Um, we have, outside the Postal Service, the Department of Defense has the largest fleet of vehicles in the government. And we're thinking a lot about how do we transition that fleet to electric? And that's, that's going to have benefits for, uh, for the United States as, it, as uh, electric vehicles increasingly become the dominant technology. It's also going to help us learn about this technology so that we can, we can better understand how to transition it uh, to the battlefield. I mean, there's, there's some really interesting capabilities that could come with electrification of vehicles, things like silent watch, being quiet. Um, things like a lower heat signature not being able to be found. So there are some uh, interesting capability benefits that come with, with these technologies, and we're, we're, we're really being aggressive in this space because, again, um, it's, it aligns well with our mission, and it also happens to be good for the climate. DOD has, in the past year or so, put out a lot of different strategies and plans about climate change, sustainability, and how it's thinking about that. So I was wondering if you could just sort of sum up things and explain a bit of, of how DOD is approaching climate change and how it's thinking about it differently than it has in the past. It might be helpful to just start by asking ourselves the question, why does why the Department of Defense actually care about climate change? Why does it... Why does it matter to our mission? And I think the answer to that's pretty straightforward. You know, uh, climate change is, is increasing demand and scope of military operations, um, while at the same time impacting readiness and imposing some really unsustainable costs. 
on the department. So on one hand, it's, it's requiring us to do a lot more uh, and potentially to do a lot more. And on the other hand, it's, it's impacting our ability to actually perform those missions. So increasing temperatures, changing precipitation patterns, more frequent, unpredictable extreme weather, they're all exacerbating risk to the department and creating new challenges to both, both our interests and, frankly, and those of our, our allies around the world. Um, and what we know is the risk is, is growing quite a bit. Um, so for us to kind of train, fight, and win to do the mission that we, are, we need to do on behalf of the American uh, people, we have to make sure we're considering those impacts and that we're preparing ourselves for kind of a range of threats uh, that are going to uh, come our way. Um, the truth, actually, is that, that you know, climate change is setting the context for uh, the range of national security challenges we face, and conditions will will increasingly confront um, in the coming decades. And uh, just wanted to dig in a little bit on that uh, last subject there. Could you talk about the threat landscape and how climate change changes that? You know, we're seeing different threats and different opportunities and, and challenges grow everywhere from the Arctic to deserts and all sorts of things. So, you know, what, what does climate change do in those situations and how is, is DOD trying to adapt? If we look around the world, uh, we see climate-related challenges in every AOR um, that we operate. So the Arctic, we know, is warming at a rate twice as fast as the rest of the planet, you know, accelerating ice melt, uh, driving competition with China over sea routes, mineral wealth. But we know that, in fact, uh, Secretary Austin uh, visited Alaska uh, this past July, July 21, and he talked about how uh, climate is making, uh, climate change is making the Arctic a theater for resource competition and, and even uh, potentially instability. So we need to think about that. If you go over to CENTCOM, uh, you, you, you know, you see hotter temperatures, drought-induced migration, contributing to instability there. So um, the Iraqi uh, uh, Minister of Defense uh, said something striking. You know, he said that uh, climate change was uh, what he called an existential threat to Iraq's national security. And, and he described conditions of drought, which he, under, which he said that, uh, like, ISIS understands pretty well, too, and, is, and said that ISIS, uh, you know, targets water resources, uh, things like the Mosul Dam, in a bid to, to undermine the government. Um, obviously, AFRICOM, or in Africa, we see uh, uh, challenges related to food insecurity, disease, displacement. Um, there's something on the order of 80% of the Sahel's farmland is degraded, and 50 million people are in that region to, and, and rely on, uh, on livestock rearing for survival. And if you think about drought and what that what the drought conditions could do to millions and tens of millions of people, um, displacing them from their uh, from their traditional lands, what that can mean for governments that uh, sometimes struggle anyway. So uh, we know that's going to be a challenge. Same is true in in um, uh, just uh, in, in South America, Central and South America. You know, we know drought in places like Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala is one contributing factor to migration patterns north, and we see that at our southern border. And then, of course. As we look to the Pacific, um, we know that um, it, 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 as we look to the Pacific, um, we know that um, it, 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 extreme weather, um, uh, rising seas, 
uh, are going to impact uh, mission sets there. You know, we, um, we have uh, typhoons in Guam, for example, most commonly occur between June and December. But a couple of years ago, there was a typhoon uh, in February. And that the impact on us was that it caused us to pause exercises with allies. And so that's a significant impact. Joe Bryan, the Defense Department's chief sustainability officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, and what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.